Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We're looking at today again at the uh, book of Philemon. Um, my title here is The Extent of Liberation. What are we enslaved to and from what do we need? Liberation is the idea. And so in Philemon, is Paul simply giving some recommendations to Philemon? Or is he in fact commanding Philemon and commanding all Christians everywhere to complete their faith by living it out in both the economic and political realm, which is what slavery represents. So let's read another portion here, Philemon 4 to 9. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And so the focus here, Paul says, well, I could order you to do this, but I'm not going to. I could use my apostolic authority. Another way of getting at the basic question of how we're to read the book of Philemon is to ask about the precise nature and domain of slavery. And so let me set forth two possible alternatives, two alternative propositions. And when I first say them, I I don't know that you will even able to hear the difference or to uh, know or see any difference whatsoever. But what I'm going to suggest is this slight difference will be determinative of the sort of Christianity we believe to be the case. Here's my two propositions. Number one, slavery is a metaphor for sin in Scripture. Okay? Number two, the second, slavery is a type of sin in Scripture. Now let me run down the difference And the two propositions pertain not simply to how we understand the book of Philemon, but how we understand Christian freedom and redemption. In the first proposition, if slavery is simply a metaphor for sin, this will pertain to the way we read uh, about the slavery of the Jews in Egypt and the story of the Exodus. We might read the slavery in Exodus and maybe the entire Old Testament as a spiritual allegory in which physical slavery is an illustration of the sort of spiritual bondage we experience in sin. 
In this understanding, sin does not pertain to the socio-political realm, but has to do with the psychological, the interior part of our humanity. Making bricks, you know, without straw, might not so much pertain to the oppression of pharaohs and kings that they can produce, but aren't we all made to make brick with straw, without straw by our own pride? And so we are sinners in that we are bound by selfish desires, envy, hatred, greed, and we're enslaved to the various forms of addiction or habits. Now, while no one would deny that this is part of what the New Testament means by sin, by picturing real-world slavery as an illustration of this inward bondage, we might imagine that the outward form of slavery does not pertain to the weightier inward spiritual slavery. The outward world is in no way determinative, nor does it pertain to the the real, the inward world. Isn't salvation, I'm still doing this proposition, so don't get confused, isn't salvation primarily private and inward, mainly having to do with my personal relationship to Jesus? Isn't the important thing that I make sure to cultivate an inward spirituality? Say my devotions, do my prayers every day, my Bible reading, and attempt to call my neighbors, uh, tell them about Jesus so that they can get saved. Now certainly it is not that the outward world, even in this proposition, is completely irrelevant. Rather, just as the enslavement of the Jews in Egypt is a kind of allegory, can't we say that one's outward life and circumstance is an allegorical reflection of one's saved or damned condition? And this is the way John Calvin will describe it. He says that one's personal wealth is a sign that he is one of the elect. How do we know if we are saved? How do we know if we're one of the elect? Especially if salvation is primarily an inward event. Well, the wealth that we accumulate and the health that we enjoy as good Christians is a sign that God is blessing us. I'm still doing this proposition here. So the way we might read Philemon under this understanding is to say that Slavery per se is not a sin. Therefore, Philemon can largely ignore Paul's letter with no danger to his Christian, you know, spirituality. And we can read this letter not so much from the perspective that Paul is using his apostolic authority so that Onesimus might be freed, Rather, he is simply offering advice to a friend that he can either follow or ignore with no danger to his spiritual well-being. And let me take it a step further, and I'm nearing blasphemy here, so 
Um, might we say that Paul's advice is in fact contrary to good common financial concerns? Slavery is the means by which Philemon, at least in part, has been able to accumulate his wealth. Slaves are the equivalent of the first century in the, of a savings account. And the more you have, the more capital and security you've accumulated, the more God is blessing. And so according to Calvin's notion, for Philemon to free Onesimus would be on the order of relinquishing his assurance that he is one of the elect. Now I could continue with this. I hope what you see is a kind of perverse reading of the New Testament. Jesus' concern with the poor, well, that does not pertain so much to financial poverty as spiritual poverty. His picture of the impossibility of a rich man to enter into heaven You know, compares it to a camel passing through the eye of a needle. Well, isn't that mere hyperbole indicating that salvation is impossible for all of us? His hard teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about anger, lust, and wealth. Surely we cannot take that literally. Rather, this is more akin to our allegorical reading of Jewish slavery. Christ's advice to the rich young ruler, you know, his exhortation to spiritual perfection, aren't these simply a form of irony meant to demonstrate the impossibility of righteousness through works? We could continue, but I think you get the idea. There would be nothing left of the New Testament what we would have would be something more anti-Christian than Christian, I'm afraid. The fact that there are large majorities of Christians that read the New Testament in this way, I don't think it lends any weight to this reading. It simply shows that slavery and perversity, uh, which produces slavery of every kind, enslaves many of those who claim to have put on the freedom of Christ. So I would argue slavery is not simply a metaphor for sin, but is a case in point of sin. It is a manifestation of sin. And the reason this pertains to us is that in the same way the socio-economic and political system of slavery enslave, not just the slaves, but the masters, so too our own cultural, political, and socioeconomic system will shape our values so that nothing Christian is going to survive. Slavery, I believe, is the biblical motif which gets at this all-pervasive economic, social, and psychological system. And of course, once we've said that, it's against this background that exodus and redemption are to be understood. The New Testament subversion of slavery, which is what I think is happening here in the book of Philemon, is an example, is a case in point of the manner in which Christ always defeats sin. So the practice of sin entailed in slavery 
is not simply a metaphor, but is a case in point illustration. Thus, Christian liberation is from social, political, economic, you know, certainly anger, greed, all of these categories. But the divide between inward and outward slavery that we get in the notion that slavery is a mere metaphor is mistaken in several ways. I think the primary mistake is to imagine that as persons, our spirits, our souls exist apart from our bodies, and it is to picture the psychological and spiritual as if it floats free from our embodied real-world circumstance. And so to counter this understanding, let me say two things. The first is that the way we are saved in the New Testament is not individually, but corporately. We're saved by joining a new community of people. We're saved by becoming members of the body of Christ. How we act in this new community. That was you know, the lesson from Colossians, that loving and caring for the brethren, putting off the unfruits of covetousness and licentiousness and putting on the fruits of the spirit love joy long suffering which all of this has to do with human relations that is the way that we put on salvation we join this new community we have an alternative ethic and an alternative lifestyle and so as the church we're attempting to be a peculiar people that is we're different we're supposed to be different We're to have a different economy, one of grace. We're to have a different form of governments, not one in which people are seeking power and control, but we're to be servants, subordinate to one another. That's the one, the first thing. The second thing that we must not miss in in Christian salvation is that it's through resurrection. Our bodies and our embodied circumstance is not separate from our spiritual circumstance. The way in which we put on Christ is not simply a mental or soulish exercise. We walk this out. We live it out. And so, and I'm actually, this is not really a separate thing from the first. Bodily resurrection entails community together. Bodily resurrection entails the notion that our embodied human circumstance is part of what is saved. And so it's really just a way of saying the first thing in a different way. Resurrection and the living resurrection lifestyle is something we accomplish in community. And so the resurrection is the reestablishment of the community of Israel. And this is a, a key thing. That is that if the Old Testament and Old Testament slavery is simply allegorical, then we can kind of set that aside. There's a kind of supersessionism in which the church and Israel are pictured as two separate things. But Paul says that the church is Israel. In Galatians 6.16, And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, Upon the Israel of God. So there's this continuity between the slavery 
of Israel and the slavery that we're saved from. And there's a continuity then in our being the new Israel and the socio-political cultural circumstance of the old Israel. So the early Christians, like the Jews, saw themselves embodying a national, a social, a political way of life. Israel's story was their story. And they did not psychologize it and etherealize it to make it theirs. And this is not to deny the deep psychological nature of the gospel, but it is to say that the way we get to that deep part of ourselves and the way we transform it is not separate from the social and the political. You know, think here, what if Philemon had said, no, Paul, I'm going to be a slave master and Philemon, or Onesimus is going to be a slave Do you think that would not pertain to his spirituality? Of course it would. Think of the slavery, you know, of the Jews in Israel. What if it was truly, you know, what if the slavery is truly more of a psychological slavery? And Moses comes and says, set my people free. And Pharaoh said, now what exactly do you mean, Moses? Do you mean that they want to be free spiritually? That they want to experience the psychological freedom? He said, that would be wonderful. Of course, they can make bricks and experience that kind of freedom. They can make bricks without straw. Uh... I I hope you see, the the point is that's ridiculous. And it's just as ridiculous to imagine that Onesimus could could be be free in Christ and still be treated as non-human slave in the church. In any sense of the term, for him to be a part of the freedom of Christ, he has to be a part of a community of freedom. A part, that, a part of a community that recognizes his humanity. At the same time, Philemon could not attain freedom, I believe, apart from acknowledging Onesimus is my brother. Because it binds him as much as it binds Onesimus. This slavery is not just the part of the problem of the oppressed, It's the problem of the oppressor. And so Paul subverts the slavery to which both Paul and Philemon and the first century world, we believe that most of the Christians, perhaps a majority, were themselves slaves. And so he's drawing these two brothers together into a reconciled family and he's overcoming slavery. He's subverting it. But isn't this always the way that sin is defeated through the reconciled community of which we are part? Justice and righteousness always pertain to relationships restored. Maybe there can be Christian slaves masters. Maybe, I don't know, there can be Christian pedophiles, Christian idolaters, Christian sorcerers. Christian dissensions, Christian drunkenness, 
Maybe those practices do in fact exist in the church, but those should be oxymoronic. It's a contradiction. And as we said today, you know, maybe there is such a thing, but that doesn't mean there should be. And so Paul tells Philemon to accept Onesimus back as if he is Paul himself. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Regard him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. And the thing is, you can't do both. He can't be slave and brother at the same time. And so this is the emotion that's there you know, in the letter that Paul speaks of Onesimus as my love, beloved, my child whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. I'm sending you my very heart. And behind this intense emotion is certainly the picture of what might be done to troublesome slaves. That's what crucifixion was for primarily. You want to keep your slaves in line? Well, crucify one or two of them. Biblical slavery is specifically defined in its vulnerability to crucifixion. And crucifixion was the way in which subject peoples were kept in line. But every form of slavery, and ultimately every form of sin, depends upon this same fear of death. Hebrews 2.14-15 Though death, through death he rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There are many ways that we might be enslaved, but they all partake of the same predicament. Slaves were kept in line by crosses, so that to take up the cross shatters the power that enslaves. Thus, it is through crucifixion that Christ liberates from every form of slavery. The death resistance which kept slavery alive is precisely the universal power of sin. All sin, Isaiah tells us, is a covenant with death. Or as in Genesis 3, we're always doing a deal with the devil in which we deny death. You know, that you'll know good and evil. You won't die. It amounts to living a kind of living death. And the slave of sin, like the Roman slave, is kept in line through the power of death. So the manner in which slavery is subverted, and the way in which sin is undone, begins with the fact that Christ is crucified as the equivalent of a Roman slave. The master that both Paul and Philemon serve has been crucified as a lowly slave. Now, in all of this, Paul, of course, is laying a heavy burden also on Onesimus. He's telling him, go back and demonstrate repentance within this institution which is necessarily unjust. It's life-consuming. But Paul does not say explicitly, but certainly he hints that Philemon should take the next logical step. He says this, having confidence in your obedience 
I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Which would seem to imply that Philemon free Onesimus, so Onesimus can in fact come back and serve Paul, which is what he wants. The choice is simple. Paul can, you know, keep Philemon as a slave, but if he does that, he can't have him as a brother. He can have him as a brother, but he can't have him as a slave. He could be a slave master, or he himself can be a servant of Christ. Now, we might think, you know, Philemon should say, well, wait a minute, Paul, this is none of your business. How he organizes his personal affairs, you know, what we do with our money, isn't that our private affair? What we relinquish when we join in the church, I believe, is precisely this private notion that my stuff is my stuff and your stuff is your stuff and never the twain shall meet. The church gets to say how we do things, right? When we join the church, the church can tell us how we're to arrange our sexual lives and our economic lives. We can't sleep around, but neither can we own other people. So Christians are necessarily called from anti-Christian occupations and economies and identities. Slavery with its class prejudice, its economic oppression, its denial of human dignity is the archetype of any such system. And so if Philemon were, you know, when he received this letter, you know, think of what Paul says. He says, receive Onesimus back as a brother. Forgive everything. Charge it to my account. Imagine if Philemon refuses these so-called recommendations. What if he chose, in spite of the letter, to continue to treat Philemon as his slave? And of course, this is the great controversy that occurs in this country with the advent of, or you know, the problem of slavery. Um, what if he chose, we might wonder, what, you know, to, to reject Paul? What kind of faith would he be left with? A Christian slave master. It's a real world issue in the first century, and, and maybe it's just the real world issue the church is always faced with. I believe one can no more presume the correctness of being a Christian slave master than you can be a Christian zealot, a Christian Pharisee, a Christian harlot, or a Christian executioner. There may be such things, but there shouldn't be. Redemption entails departure from revolutionary violent zealotry, Jewish legalism, it involves departure from the sex trade. It involves departure from being one of those who killed Christ and could execute Christians. Again, there may be slave master Christians, Pharisee Christians. There may be Nazi Christians. There may be Nazi, you know, Christian pimps, Christian drug lords, Christian mercenaries. But if the word Christian means anything, there really shouldn't be Christian versions of these things. And so Paul is subverting slavery, but he's subverting every 
occupation, economic identity, socio-political identity that would align Christianity with its opposite. And so Onesimus and Philemon can come to the fullness of Christian freedom psychologically and spiritually only if they do so in the reality of the relationship to one another. Yeah. Just like the Jewish slaves cannot be freed inwardly and still make bricks. So Christianity, as it's very often psychologized you know, by liberal Christians, by evangelicals, I believe it makes no sense of the New Testament. Certainly this was not the hope of Israel for a disembodied bliss after death. What they wanted was national liberation that would fulfill the expectations of the exodus. The church is not simply Israel in our heads. We are to begin the work of being the kingdom, of providing this affirmation of human worth. We're to practice kingdom ethics. And so, in this sense, slavery is not merely a biblical metaphor for sin, but I believe it is a substantive manifestation of the all-consuming oppression constituting sin. Exodus from slavery is the primary motif of redemption because slavery is definitive of the economy, the mode of governance, the psychology. And all of these things are involved continually in our enslavement to sin, the all-consuming destructiveness of sin, and thus indicates the holistic nature of deliverance that we are to experience as the body of Christ. Let's sing our hymn of invitation. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.